You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. I'm a huge fan of High Sierra showerheads for many reasons, including how they are incredibly water efficient, they provide tremendous water pressure, and they're made from solid metal with no plastic parts. I also love supporting a small business that's based in the High Sierra foothills where their team designs and assembles all of the showerheads with parts from suppliers in California. This is a U.S. company. I've spent time talking with owner David Malcolm. He's concerned about the pressures facing our water resources and wants to make a difference. That's why he's focused his company on water conservation and energy efficiency. High Sierra Showerheads is exactly the type of product and company that's worth our support. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Uh, very excited to be joined by two people who have just uh, have a book out here. It is Streams of Revenue. It is about the restoration economy and the ecosystem it creates. I have Martin Doyle. He is professor at the Nicholas School at Duke University. Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to be here. And I have Rebecca Lave. She is professor and chair of the Department of Geography at Indiana University. Rebecca, glad you could join as well. A pleasure. Congratulations on, on getting a book out there. That's, a, that's a big achievement. Um, I'm, let's start with some of the basics that, that lead into this. The concept of ecosystem services. Could you explain what that, what that means? Sure. So it was developed in the late 60s by ecologists that were trying to find another way to motivate uh, environmental conservation. So, so what they felt was that the, the audience for conservation had sort of grown to a certain point and then stalled and that there were not getting, we weren't getting more people involved and passionate about protecting the environment. And so they thought, well, you know, the lingua franca of the 20th century is, is cash, right? It's capital, it's money. So could we find a way to express the value of the ecosystems around us 
in cash in terms of the services they provide us for free that we don't pay for. How much would it cost if we paid for them? So that's where that language comes from um, of ecosystem services. And it got picked up by environmental economists who were interested in actually putting a price tag on nature. So I should say that the ecologists who started this weren't thinking about setting up markets. They were just trying to get people to find another way to value the world around them. But then it gets picked up through environmental economists who want to actually put a price tag on it. And so that's how we get into these ecosystem services and valuation of them. And Martin, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Yeah, it's kind of it's this really strange intersection when two different disciplines intersected unintentionally. And so you have these ecologists that are starting to say ecosystems retain nitrogen, ecosystems attenuate floods. And then there's this pivotal year of 1997 when a book comes out by a famous ecologist, Gretchen Daly. Um, and that kind of puts this, uh, it kind of launches ecosystem services into the broader uh, kind of um, language, as, as Rebecca said. And then you also have this um, infamous paper uh, that came out in Nature uh, by Costanza et al. Um, and it, it puts a price, it literally values the ecosystem services of the planet. And it comes up with a really big number. Um, and it's in the billions or trillions of dollars. Um, and it basically, its main point isn't so much the number as much as ecosystems do a lot of work for us and that work would actually cost a lot to replace. Mm -hmm. And so from there, it kind of scaled in a way that I don't think anyone really would have imagined. Well, you kind of you know made the point that these were very different fields, if you will, environmentalism, environmental conservation, and then you know economics. And a lot of people view those as, or traditionally viewed them as, as opposing each other, meaning if you worked good for the environment, it wasn't going to be good for the economy. Uh, and I think that this shows that that's not the case. Could you give some more examples of the services that nature provides that get valued? Absolutely. So the classic one that uh, many people use is pollination. So thinking about the ways in which crops are pollinated and continued, we're completely dependent on insects, butterflies, and you know some birds and bats for that. Um, another key one is is cleaning up water, which which Martin referred to. This is maybe the most common example you'll see in writing about ecosystem services is the New York City water supply. So at some point in the 90s, I believe, they were confronted with having to spend, um, I want to say, like $5 billion on a new water treatment. And instead, they chose to invest a considerable but still much smaller amount of money in um, uh, fixing septic fields, in buying buffer land, and just doing a bunch of, of repair of ecosystem services that got them the same result. So that's maybe the most dramatic example of, of how pricing ecosystem services led people to change what they were doing to promote environmental conservation. Similar thing with um, coastal protection. So instead of building a seawall of actually going in and planting um, seagrass beds or mangrove swamps or something like that, which have a similar effect of uh, buffering tidal surges. Um, so th there's a lot of things that we use uh, built or great infrastructure for that uh, ecosystems can do, can provide similar if not identical services to across very different things from pollination to storm surge protection. So how then did this kind of look at ecosystem services evolve into the idea of market-based approaches to environmental conservation? Yeah, so that one is, um, 
we're going to pick apart. So we're going to pick apart a few words over over this podcast, and I okay. think that being precise in a couple terms is going to be it, it. It kind of is what makes some of these practices. It, it makes or breaks them. And I think the first term that Rebecca and I uh, really want to get nailed down um, is the the word market. And so usually when we talk about market, we usually are imagining voluntary markets. So I'm going to go out and buy an apple. Um, that's purely voluntary on me. There's this whole other class of markets uh, that we refer to as regulatory markets. And these are markets that uh, a service or a product is provided, um, but you're only entering that market, in you're, you're not voluntarily entering into it, you're entering into it uh, by regulatory compulsion. So a really good example of this is uh, getting my car inspected for air emissions. I personally don't, I would not go and pay for that every month, my 25 or $30 that I have to pay for it. But the government says, in order for me to drive a car, I have to get that permit every year. So they've created a regulatory market. A whole bunch of uh, businesses are around, you know, my, my hometown and they inspect our cars. Um, but what they're providing, the, the commodity that's being traded is, uh, is regulatory compliance. And so what we have in the environmental space is in air quality and water quality and the Clean Water Act compliance, the government comes in and says um, X has to exist or X has to happen, but we're not going to tell you exactly how to do it. You have to comply with these regulations, but how you do it, um, the market can actually provide that regulatory compliance. And so that framework starts to be set up. Um, it actually has a long history that Rebecca unearthed with a few other people that goes way back, um, but it really started to come into the Clean Water Act uh, space in the early 1990s or so. And I'll let Rebecca kind of pick it up from there. Sure. So so here you have, the, the, with the idea of a regulatory market, the idea that, that the purchaser isn't there voluntarily, right? They have to have to buy this commodity and they don't really care what it is, but it's a way to try to give them more kind of, the idea is to give them more flexibility and to make things more efficient. So with the Clean Water Act, um, we've never enforced it the same way we've enforced the Endangered Species Act, for example, where there's um, a much stricter sense of thou shalt not, right? The idea of command and control. The Clean Water Act has been enforced throughout its history with a more flexible framework that's known as the mitigation sequence, where a particular project is reviewed, it comes forward for a permit under the Clean Water Act, and the idea is that first you would avoid impacts to the extent possible, those impacts that you can't avoid, you would minimize, and those impacts that you can't minimize, you would then compensate for. So the Clean Water Act has allowed damage to aquatic systems from the beginning. Um, where the market piece came in was saying, okay, initially when people were providing their own compensation on site, they were trying to do restoration on site, that wasn't working very well because if you're a hotel developer, for example, or you're trying to build a shopping mall, you probably don't know very much about how to build a good, um, how to restore a stream or a wetland, right? So, so the idea was that if you could introduce market players, if you, if you could introduce people into this who were specialized providers of restoration, who would produce restoration that could be sold to the people I'm not explaining this very well, but that could be sold to the people that are damaging the environment to offset their damage, right? That that might work better. 
Um, so that's how the idea of markets get introduced into this, how ecosystem service markets enter into Clean Water Act compliance. And Martin, I feel like I didn't do a great job on that. So I don't know if you want to add to that. <laughs> I thought I thought you did. I mean, and, and you guys have an example, some really simple examples in the book of just saying, like, someone wants to build a hotel here. Well, they're going to have to, you know, basically fill in wetlands and just build. Well, then they will compensate by paying some organization or somebody someplace else to restore wetlands that were that were not healthy. So they're just it's like a trade off, basically. Yeah, it's, it's very much a cap and trade in the number of acres of wetland or linear feet of stream in a watershed. If you're going to beat up 100 feet in your land, you got to you have to restore or someone has to restore at least 100 feet somewhere else. The Clean Water Act history part is was really fascinating to me. You know, having I worked at EPA in the Office of Water in, in DC and 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 Chesapeake Bay, and uh, definitely was around a lot of conversations about 404 permits and and all this kind of thing. And what what was in, originally envisioned, you know, that that the idea that well these just weren't going to be given out, right? There would be a lot of permits just denied, but that didn't end up being the case. It went to this mitigation sequence where it's like, well, can you fix things on the land or change your plans? Oh, you can't. Okay, go do something someplace else. That's very, very interesting history from a policy perspective. For many people, the number of permits that get approved, um, I think would be shocking to hear. So that, you know, in any, the the one year, there was a, a survey of the Army Corps of Engineers permits and they only rejected a quarter of a percent of permit applications, right? So it means the vast majority get approved. Um, and so this mitigation and how that gets figured out is actually uh, really broadly consequential on the landscape and hydroscape of the U.S. Yeah, and then I think, I hope I get this right, I think EPA has a special veto authority even where they can come in and and kind of supersede the Army Corps or whatever, and that's been only used a, a, a very, very small number of times. Like I think 23 times since the passage of the Clean Water Act. So uh, I, if the number's right, I'm going to make up a number and we'll pretend it's right for now. You're 10 <laughs> times more likely to ve- for a presidential, uh, for the president to veto an act of Congress than for the EPA to veto uh, a permit from the Corps of Engineers. So it, it's it's definitely a lever that's out there for EPA, but it's used very sparingly. Stream mitigation banking then. This is kind of like uh, a market-based approach to environmental conservation. This is kind of one of the things that you're talking about. So how does stream mitigation banking, I think you've kind of explained how it works, but let's, mm-hmm. let's dive into it deeper here. Yeah. Well, so to go back to the, the definition that Martin was putting forward, it's a regulatory market. And the way it works is here you are, say, a shopping mall developer with an inconveniently located stream where you want the parking lot of your new shopping mall to be. You go to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to get your permit to do it, and they say to you, all right, you can go ahead and put that stream in a culvert under your parking lot, which will basically ecologically destroy it, as long as you pay for the restoration of an equivalent amount of stream somewhere else. Right. And that, that the way that that works is that stream is provided typically through a second party provider, which is an entrepreneur who produces these stream restoration credits in advance by speculatively buying rights to property with a degraded stream on it and then restoring that stream um, under the and getting approved by regulators. So as, as, as Martin has noted, it's a commodity market. It's, but the commodity that's for sale is not, you know, a can of tomatoes or a pair of blue jeans or an ounce of gold. 
it's a stream, which is really weird to think about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, so then you have these entrepreneurs that uh, they know that the demand is going to be coming along because of how much property is being developed um, in an area. And uh, they start going around uh, and driving the back roads of North Carolina or Indiana or all over the U.S. Uh, looking for degraded streams. And when they find them, then they then they basically look for an opportunity to restore them. Once they restore them, they have credits. And then they basically go out on the market to sell those credits. Sure. And so, you know, you both um, with this book, I think really kind of set out to explore how this restoration economy has worked, how these market-based approaches have worked, but but through the lens of stream mitigation banking. Is that fair summary? Um, yes. And I think you just, you know, you really dove into how hard and complex stream mitigation banking is. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's funny because the two of us come about this from very different angles. So I'm trained as a natural scientist and engineer and Rebecca's trained as a social scientist. And um, we have a long history together, which is uh, which plays into some of the, the way we think together. But it's hard in part because as, as a first step, we actually don't know how to restore streams very well. Um, just even setting all the market uh, side of things apart. Um, I mean, I, I came up through the mid 90s being trained in hydraulic engineering of stream restoration. Um, and as my mentor, one of the godfathers of stream restoration said, um, oncologists have a much better track record than stream restoration practitioners. Mm. Um, so we just, um, they're complicated systems. Uh, we can do a lot of things to them physically. We can engineer them, but actually getting these ecosystems to take root and actually grow back. Um, it's just, it's a really hard branch of applied science. So just doing that basic work turns out to be trickier than we think it, uh, than it was when we started this mitigation banking enterprise. Yeah. So that's one huge challenge. It's just the, the uncertainty of the whole practice, right? There are kinds of stream restoration techniques that we know are fairly effective. Um, removing obstacles, so removing culverts, removing dams, those have great track records. But many of the things that we do to restore streams in this country, including the things that are particularly incentivized by stream mitigation banking, which are these uh, massive comprehensive reconfigurations of channels, right, where you have to come in, cut down the trees and riparian vegetation so you can actually get to the stream and then you reconfigure it, reshape it physically. That's an enormously um, invasive intervention. Um, and the track records for it, unfortunately, really aren't good in terms of addressing the kinds of things we care about with stream restoration. So water quality and then, and then the species that live in the stream, right? The bugs and the fish. Hmm. Are there... Um are there any specific examples um, of, of places that highlight this this challenge or complexity? I mean, a couple of good places uh, are, in general, not just places, but there have been a series of um, what are called meta-analysis, where scientists basically grab all the studies that have been done, they shove them all together into a big database, or they review them very systematically. And the systematic review of um, the available data related to stream restoration um, really calls the basic practices into question, especially the practices that Rebecca's mentioning of this um, very high intervention kind of approach. There are these other ones, you know, culvert removal, dam removal, uh, levee setbacks. Um, those uh, those seem to be working really well. But this approach of getting bulldozers into stream, what mm. I kind of consider to be deep open heart surgery approach, our track record there is just, uh, it's not that great. 
So it's not specific to a place. It's really specific to the technique, if that makes sense. Absolutely does. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of opened the book with a great, uh, there's a photo, an aerial photo, I think, of a, a stream in North Carolina um, that I guess had been basically a, a ditch, right? So it was a straight line, and they went in to try to do this this open heart surgery reconstruction, and you know it's a very artificial looking even meander that had to go into place, and it's like this is not really a real stream necessarily. So, what would you say your conclusion is? Is it that that stream mitigation banking needs to be reinvented? or that it is not really a feasible market-based approach? Um, I'm going to take the specific, the the stream part, and I'm going to let Rebecca kind of uh, maybe tell us why the world's going to hell in a handbasket, maybe. <laughs> um, but I think on the stream part in particular, I'm going to go back to the, the cover of the book is the stream, and it's actually a, a, a person who's kind of my neighbor, Tom, and I drive by it every day. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Now, and since the book has been finished, I can say every stream in between where I live and the 14 miles to campus has been restored. So every one of these rural streams that I drive past has has been re-meandered, which is kind of incredible. Um, and but I think one of the 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 things about it is um, when they're restored, what what the science shows is that the the actual practice of restoration doesn't work so well. But they're required to have this what's called a conservation easement. And so the land on either side of the stream has to be basically fallowed. It has to be put into easement and not used anymore. And so 10 years ago, the drive to work was really depressing because it was a bunch of denuded landscapes with weird sinusoidal artificial streams. But 10 years later, every stream I go over has this kind of growing riparian kind of forest growing up around it. So it's almost the side benefit of the restoration is starting to generate some interesting benefits, whereas the signature piece of the restoration, this reconstruction, it may be causing more damage than good. So the actual thing of restoration may actually work simply because we're setting aside some land around it. But that's specific to stream restoration. I think the, the bigger question is what does this type of industry start to generate? You know, and, and what we've, what we've argued about that in the book is that what mitigation banking is doing is producing these landscapes that exactly fit what regulators are asking for because they're regulatory markets. Um, and those criteria, the metrics that regulators use are at the moment quite narrow. They really focus on the stability of the channel and the channel form and on these very interventionist approaches. So that's what we get all across the landscape from mitigation banking, from stream mitigation banking. And so, you know, what we basically have is an extension and expansion of the kinds of damage to streams that was happening previously. Um, But we don't have a change really in the techniques, even though we've switched from command and control to a market-based approach, um, you know, there's been an intensification of the kinds of design practices that promoted stability because that's what the metrics ask for. What there hasn't been is an increase in environmental conservation and environmental health, right? The goal of these market-based approaches, the, the argument for them is that the our former approach, which continues, it's not exactly former, but the, the command and control approach to environmental regulation, the idea of thou shalt, that that has failed and that a market-based approach would really provide an inflection point, an important change, an important improvement in how we conserve the environment, that really isn't what's happened. So, you know, Martin and I feel differently about that as an outcome, right? 
um, as someone who is um, is deeply worried about the marketization of the environment, I feel like, well, this kind of proves it didn't work. Whereas I think Martin feels more like, no, we should fix it. Um, mm. But we, de we definitely agree that it needs fixing because sure. even though I might wish it would go away, I'm pretty sure it's here to stay. Or it's here to stay might be too strong, at least I hope it's too strong, but here for a while. <laughs> so, so, so then we started thinking about how to do it better. So, so you're saying that you think that it should be much more of that hammer, the thou shalt, this is it, boom. And Martin's like, well, we could maybe reconfigure this and have some different criteria that could make it work. Yeah, it's... Um, how, how do, and how did you guys reconcile those different views in a book that you co-wrote? <laughs> well, I'm right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I don't think we... I think um, it's interesting. The last chapter took a long time to write because I don't think... It's not that e each one of us wasn't willing to budge. It's that we both respect each other and we both knew that there was something right in what the other person thought. But it really does come, I think... In one sense, it comes from a deep-rooted philosophical view of the role of markets in environmental conservation and in society in general. And um, I, I have a more encompassing, I'm willing to accept more flaws uh, deriving out of the use of markets. And Rebecca is more skeptical in the use of markets as well. And I think that we, we represent, I think, some pretty well-held views across American society. Um, but I think where we landed at the very end was something has to change. And there are a couple different ways that the policies could go that could address, that could create those changes. But no matter what, something should change, I think was the end result that we both are agreeing on. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm curious about about you, what could change, what you think should be done. And, and again, maybe you both have different uh, ideas for that, but I'd love to hear them. No, you know, we actually really agree about how to fix mitigation. <laughs> okay. um, and it has to do, isn't that, that's which is surprising, but um, <laughs> it, it really has to do with the impact that, that the metrics have, right? So, so again, regulatory market really strongly determined by the rules of that market. So we're arguing that the rules need to change. Okay, so that, and we see two very different directions of change possible. Um, so one change would be to say, you know what? Part of the problem here is that we're trying to restore streams in a comprehensive way. That's our goal, but the rules only focus on a very narrow piece of that, right? So instead of thinking chemistry, biology, physical form, we're just thinking form. So what if we took that even further and said, all right, we are good at control. We may not be great at restoration, but we're very good at control. So what if we say, we narrow our scope so we say, we're only gonna work on restoring one attribute of the stream. We're gonna work that we care about. We're gonna narrow it to um, nutrient removal or we're gonna air, uh, narrow it to water temperature or we're gonna narrow it to you know, something, something very specific. We write incredibly specific metrics and rules to, to do that and then that's what we ask these mitigation projects to do. We don't ask them to produce a newly restored stream. We ask them to just and then we end up, uh, it's interesting in Oregon, they have a, a stream thermal temperature trading program. And so uh, one way we're starting to see this, you know, you can imagine a nitrogen retention maximizing stream or a, a, a stream temperature optimizing stream. Um, so that's, you get super precise on the metrics and let's get what we want. 
The other one is the complete flip side, which is um, we want ecosystems. And if you want river ecosystems, river ecosystems are the best at creating those. Just get the buffer and let the river does what it's going to do. And just basically take your hands off. Stop trying to say that this is what rivers should look like. The river is going to erode and create its own path anyway. And so just basically go into more of a preservation kind of a mode. Just let the natural ecosystem. So you kind of get the wild child in one sense. And the other one, you get the really, really well-disciplined, you know, stream child in the other. Um, but it really depends on which... Um, uh, what society wants from its streams. Does it want specific services from aquatic ecosystems or does it want really natural processing uh, processes to exist? Yeah, very interesting. So there's a lot of different people involved and, and organizations and, and parts of, of society from government to nonprofits and, and the business development side. Um, any idea, well, I imagine through putting this book together, you got a lot of opinions. Um, what what were no, we kind just of do in general, both of us? So yeah. <laughs> what what were kind of the uh, some of the the opinions you got out there from the different sectors, maybe from from government, from the you know development community, from the the environmental NGO community? What do they feel about the state of stream mitigation banking and you know reinventing it? Nobody that we talk to thinks the current system has great outcomes, right? Everybody's worried about it because, you know, people are aware that the emphasis on stability is sort of uh, antithetical to how streams work, right? You know, streams move. That's what they do. Um, and so there's a lot of awareness that the current system is not ideal. Um, so, so I think, you know, I, I think that's, there are a lot of factors that that support that, that kind of contribute to the maintenance of the system that no one thinks is ideal among them and i think this really is such an important thing to address is the incredible lack of time and money that regulators have to do the work that they're supposed to do right i mean you know there are many stories out there in which regulators are the bad guys i want to be really clear that that's not where martin and i are coming from at all Okay, there are, they, these folks are operating under incredible constraints that really limit what's possible, right? So, so that's a big piece of it. Just, it would be so much more complicated to try to measure, um, you know, stream chemistry, benthic macroinvertebrates, so like the insects in the stream, all those things would take so much more work than just looking at the physical form. So I think that's, that's kind of a big piece behind the inertia but nobody we talked to was happy with this. And there were, in fact, a number of designers of streams, of these stream mitigation projects I talked to, who just said really bluntly, we're worried. We think that the practice that we're doing may do more damage than harm, but what really feels to us like the one thing that makes us okay is these conservation easements, which are gonna protect the land from development in perpetuity. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that I'd say is, um, when it, to me, one of the most fascinating things about this work that we got to do was uh, by, uh, both of us have been working in this industry for a while, but because of Rebecca's training as a social scientist, she went in and interviewed, um, you know, we kind of broke people up, this is a regulator, this is an engineer, this is this, and then she went in and interviewed them, and then she anonymized them, and then I got to see the the transcripts of the interviews, and it was just fascinating to see the different perspectives through these very disciplined social science interviews. But then 
even one regulator versus another regulator would have different perspectives. And I think that this is one of the more important things that I, I think our work represents is that um, all of these efforts at environmental conservation and restoration are in the end, they are social ventures. Like these are, these are people with their own histories, their own perspectives, their own personalities doing the work of these policies and regulations. And as one of our colleagues, Morgan Robertson likes to say, these are not policy deploying automatons. Um, they, they have bad days too, and then they have to go out and inspect a site. And they saw a site that did X, Y, Z three years ago, and then they end up on another site. So there's nuance between the different buckets that they sit in, and there's nuance between the people themselves. And I think we need to always bear that in mind. Sure. Definitely. Well, I know, I know that, um, you know, you help your hope that your, your book here is going to hold it up one more time, uh, helps to kind of advance this conversation and, and open it up a little bit. Um, who would, who would you point to as the, the ones that need to take the, the leading role in, in driving change? Would it be, you know, the federal, the federal government, uh, here, or would it be the development community itself, or would it be the environmental NGOs that have such a you know such a set of eyes on this? We probably just, have different perspectives. So I'm going to let Rebecca go first on if she was going to take on one of the sectors, which one would she take on first? You know, this is going to sound like I'm punting, but I'm not. I really think it's all of the above, right? I think the regulators aren't going to be able to have the political cover to move unless the regulated public, so the business community is behind them, and unless the environmental groups are behind them too. So I, I, I tend to think that it's going to be a comprehensive effort, but Martin, I'm dying to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> so uh, I, I put the ball squarely on the Corps of Engineers, and I want to preface by just saying that I agree with Rebecca. They don't have the budget. They don't have the people to do the work that they've been charged to do, and so it's it's unfair in some ways to do it. But in the end, they are the ones that have created this regulatory market. They they grant the permits and they deny the permits. And so everything flows through um, individuals of the Corps of Engineers. So I think if we wanted to change stream mitigation banking, it has to start with them. All right. Well, they will come to both of you for the path forward then. Um, so you guys, uh, authors of Streams of Revenue, the Restoration Economy and the Ecosystems It Creates, uh, really awesome conversation, fascinating, important stuff. I thank you both for your time. Appreciate it. Great. Thank Thanks, Travis. Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at FlumeWater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.